Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. In this episode, we focus on a key community affected by hepatitis B virus infection, Asian American people. I'm joined today by Dr. Joseph Lim, Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Mindy Nguyen, Professor of Medicine at Stanford University, and patient and nurse Jennifer Wild. They will discuss their strategies to overcome barriers to HBB care in Asian American people. To follow along with the accompanying slide set, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Lim, Dr. Nguyen, and Jennifer Wild have to say about HBB care for Asian American people. Hepatitis B is not a common disease in the general population in the U.S. However, it affects Asian Americans disproportionately. One in about 12 Asian Americans have hepatitis B infection. In fact, almost two-thirds, 60% of hepatitis B infections in the U.S. occur in Asian American people. And unfortunately, 66% of Asian American people with hepatitis B do not know that they are infected. Hepatitis B and liver cancer are the primary health disparities for Asian American people. And hepatitis B-related liver cancer is the leading cause of death from cancer in Asian Americans. As I already alluded to here, hepatitis B prevalence overall is low in the general population. But in Asian Americans, it is high, 3.4%. And it is largely an imported disease. The vast majority of chronic hepatitis B infections in the U.S. occur in foreign-born people, in Asian especially. According to this study that looked at home U.S. population after uh, sampling, so it uh, is uh, designed to represent the general U.S. Uh, population. The hepatitis B awareness rate is actually really low, only 15%. So patients in this study are survey and ask, anyone, any doctor, any healthcare providers or anyone have told you that you have hepatitis B, uh, I'm sorry, uh, if that you have a liver disease, uh, not even specifically hepatitis B, and only 15% uh, say yes. So this could be due to that the patient have not been diagnosed with a liver disease or hepatitis B specifically, or that maybe they've been told, but they forgot that they have a liver problem. But the end result is that if a patient or a person is not aware that they have a liver problem or liver disease, then they are unlikely to go seek care for it. And the treatment rate for hepatitis B is only about 5%. Now, not everybody with hepatitis B needs to get hepatitis B treatment. However, the estimate is about maybe 20 to 30% of the patients with hepatitis B probably would meet treatment criteria. Uh, so this 5% treatment rate here uh, represents a very severe under-treatment of patients with hepatitis B. And that under-treatment, under-diagnosis uh, rate of hepatitis B shown in the epidemiology population survey is uh, somewhat confirmed by this real-world um, uh, study in the U.S. So this is a database that includes 198 million U.S. people with private insurance. So these patients uh, have insurance coverage. And estimating the data from this, we estimate that only about 18% of patients with hepatitis B have been diagnosed. So it's fairly close to the 15% unaware of liver disease uh, rate seen in the population epidemiology survey. And the other thing is that we found that if the people with private insurance are so underdiagnosed, like 80% um, have not been diagnosed, then you could extrapolate to the populations who do not have insurance or underinsure uh, would be likely to be even worse. So it's a severe problem. So what are some of the key challenges to hepatitis B care in general and in Asian American people? Uh, as uh, we just saw the data, financial reasons is maybe only one part of the problem because we saw a very severe 
underdiagnosis problem with the population with um, insurance, with private insurance. So some of the barriers can be country-driven belief system, um, stigma related to hepatitis B infection. Some of it may be related to knowledge barriers with language and health literacy barriers because the vast majority of hepatitis B infection in the U.S. are from foreign-born people. And the large majority of these are Asian-American, but also uh, there are a, a significant population of Hispanic, Mexican-American, and non-Hispanic Black uh, people with hepatitis B. And people come from very diverse cultural uh, and belief backgrounds and language uh, backgrounds. And then um, uh, going back to financial uh, lack of insurance coverage or access to care. Now, having insurance uh, coverage does not mean that the patient have good access to care. Uh, some insurance coverage may be uh, suboptimal coverage or someone with insurance coverage, but they don't live in an area that is near a place uh, with an HBV care provider or that they have uh, language or stigma barriers um, to access the, the care that they need. So with that, I would like to um, transfer this now to uh, Professor Lim to uh, discuss with us more on HBV-related stigma. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Wen. I think that this provides some really important context uh, for what will be a focus for today's program, which is really diving into the patient experience as well as the key barriers that impact the care of hepatitis B among Asian Americans. And so I think what we hope to do is to dive into some of the key uh, issues, the first of which is stigma. So with regards to HBV-related stigma, I think that one of the most common reports that I receive from patients is that uh, they are feel uh, significant emotions related to their diagnosis of hepatitis B, uh, largely which relate to uh, that sense of guilt or shame or having impact on themselves, their family, and other loved ones. In this first study uh, that we report on this slide, uh, this gives a sense of the experience in a Vietnamese population in Chicago. Now, and in this survey, a response were asked to address uh, the frequency in which they experienced very specific perceptions about themselves or among individuals with chronic hepatitis B infection. So in the left bar, you can see here is that what we're describing uh, is quite startling uh, and sobering, uh, so that the hepatitis B diagnosis may have an impact on one's view of being a desirable or undesirable spouse, uh, being able to be trusted as a friend, uh, trust not to bring harm to others, the need to be isolated, the shame of having a sexually transmitted infection, the need to avoid close contact with others, placing others at risk for hepatitis B, uh, the fact that they feel that maybe bring trouble uh, to their own family, uh, the feel of guilt of having this infection, and a general sense of shame about carrying a hepatitis B infection. It is striking that nearly 30% of patients experience guilt or shame about their diagnosis, uh, and particularly related to a sexually transmitted infection. And I want to highlight two that I found to be particularly uh, striking is that about 25% of individuals felt that individual hepatitis B would be an undesirable spouse, and that among individuals who um, have hepatitis B, 28% report that um, these individuals may not be trusted as friends on the basis of having hepatitis B infection. And so I think this really helps to underscore uh, that carrying a diagnosis of hepatitis B has meaningful effects on the individuals who are infected with hepatitis B as well as perceptions of others of these individuals carrying hepatitis B infection. It has meaningful effects on one sense of wellness and directly impacts relationships with others. And I think furthermore, we see evidence that over 40% felt that patients with hepatitis B should avoid close contact with others and or need to be isolated from others. Now, this is just one survey uh, in a very specific population in Chicago, uh, but I think it's quite reflective um, that we see in other studies uh, in Asian Americans uh, of very similar themes. One study of 150 adults from San Francisco, uh, the majority of whom are U.S. born, and the same themes of concern about isolation from friends or other loved ones, as well as ability to obtain a job 
or potentially impacting their employability long-term. In a second study, Asian-Americans in Michigan, the vast majority of whom were foreign-born, the similar themes of the potential need to avoid contact with others and impacts on employment. And in a third study of Asian-Americans in Chicago, the majority of whom were foreign-born, we again see uh, issues related to stigma and the fear of placing others at risk for hepatitis B through close contact. And so we see very clear themes uh, from these survey studies, again, confirm uh, that stigma uh, is highly prevalent among individuals who carry the diagnosis of hepatitis B has a significant impact on social relationships and concerns uh, with employment. Beyond the individual and on the individuals who are in so close social contact with persons with hepatitis B infection, we recognize that, that there are additional institutional barriers that contribute to stigma. And I think that uh, among the barriers that have been clearly documented in the literature are the levels of schools and universities uh, and by employers. And so I think the context of schools and universities uh, there have been multiple cases both here in the United States and other countries where the hepatitis B status is specifically uh, solicited in the um, uh, evaluation process for university admission and has directly impacted their ability to matriculate uh, at university. And furthermore, uh, particularly in certain countries, particularly in East and South Asia, that hepatitis B status uh, is a, a specific uh, question uh, that directly impacts their ability to be hired uh, for their job. And I think reflecting this is that there has been uh, the need uh, for specific legislation and policy to mitigate against this discrimination on, based on HPV status. And so a couple examples here from China, a high prevalence country for hepatitis B, I had to pass anti-discriminatory legislation in 2007 to end discrimination against workers of hepatitis B with termination of employment. And in 2010, banning testing for hepatitis B prior to enrollment in schools or for, uh, for jobs. A, a more prominent case here in the United States in 2013 was an example of uh, a medical student who was admitted on merit uh, to a medical school, uh, but based on HIV status, was denied uh, the ability to enroll and matriculate at this university. Uh, and this ultimately led to a Department of Justice case and leading to formal uh, policy that identifies chronic hepatitis B infection as a predicted condition under the American Disabilities Act. And this is a really important legal protection against indiv individuals uh, with hepatitis B experiencing discrimination by universities and or employers. So the question then lies, uh, is raised, how do we actually address this issue? Because this is far beyond uh, the medical realm and requires a broader base, multi-stakeholder approach to overcome these barriers. I think that what can we do as clinicians to address this issue? Well, number one is that we should take uh, aggressive steps to uh, open the door for conversation with our patients with hepatitis B, uh, to try to identify what is their individual experience. Uh, are they experiencing uh, stigma, anxiety, and fear about discrimination? Are they actually experiencing uh, real discrimination in their schooling and or education or workplace? on the basis of hepatitis B and serve as important advocates uh, to mitigate against these issues. Second, uh, we do want to make sure that we do our parts to create educational activities and content that are culturally and linguistically appropriate for Asian Americans uh, and the communities that we serve, um, specifically related to hepatitis B. How is it transmitted? How is it not transmitted? Uh, what is the experience of those living with hepatitis B? And what are the things that can be done uh, for monitoring and treatment. And I think if we have a broader-based education, not only of individuals with hepatitis B, but the broader community, uh, particularly in Asian-American communities, uh, it can help dispel the many myths that persist regarding risk of hepatitis B transmission between individuals. Third, I think we play an important role as clinicians to serve as advocates for changes in policy and regulations that protect individuals with hepatitis B and provide them support that they need to feel that they're able to move on with their lives, their schooling, and their and their work uh, without feeling um, discriminated on the basis of their infection with hepatitis B. And finally, I think we as clinicians can play a role in facilitating um, the involvement of our patients in various social support groups and community groups, networking groups, uh, so there is a stronger sense of community about how we individually and as a, a community 
can uh, advocate for these important changes. So at this time, I'd like to go turn this over to my colleague, uh, Jennifer Wild, uh, for initial discussion. Thanks, everybody. I think that some of the information here, even though I'm a clinical nurse, I have not heard some of this before. So I want to maybe talk about some of it. I think one of the most unsurprising, but just emotionally effective pieces of data was just seeing that bar graph with the way that patients can react and feel guilty and the way that graph also highlighted some knowledge disparities too about risk. What would you both say, and we could start with Dr. Nguyen, what would you say are perhaps some of the family dynamics with guilt? Because that for me in my patient population is is a very recurring theme, guilt towards others in the family. Yeah, um, I would agree uh, with that being a pretty common occurrence. And some patients approach you and ask you about it, and some don't. And now, if I am reflecting here, I'm thinking that, you know, maybe it's something that we should bring up more instead of just waiting for patients to bring up. So in the occasions that the patient brought up with me, it's about like my husband or my children have been vaccinated. Can I still give it to them? Like if I don't take medicine, if my virus level is high, uh, am I more likely to give it to them? So I think that, you know, in our role, as um, care providers or advocates, we can help provide the knowledge uh, because those concerns are not necessary. If the, so I generally would tell the patients that if your spouse and your children or your household have been vaccinated and have immunity uh, against it, then it really does not matter, you know, whether your virus level is high or low, they should be protected. And, you know, suggest to them, if you really want to be sure, you know, you can ask them to just have their blood test checked to make sure they have protective immunity. And then that way, you don't have to wonder about it um, ever again. Uh, they are protected. So because some patients, you know, if they if they do not really need, if they have mild disease, they do not need medication. Uh, we do not want them to feel that they, you know, have to take a medicine just uh, to protect the family when it's not necessary. Of course, when they meet treatment criteria, if they have active disease and should be treated, then that's a separate um, uh, story. I also often hear another sort of like stigma and guilt from actually many patients, uh, not even even people who are not my patients that just met me at conferences, they would usually come after at the end and ask me if they could ask me a question. They said, you know, uh, my mother uh, does not have hep B. Nobody in my family have hep B, but I have hep B, uh, but I've never been sexually active before. How can I have it? Because and that could also be another stigma. People may think that you either get from your family or you get it from, you know, having multiple sex partners or something like that. Uh, so I explained to to the patient and I try to make a point to, to emphasize this when I give lecture on this topic is that a lot of hepatitis B infections from endemic countries such as Africa, Eastern Europe or Asia the infections are horizontal during early childhood uh, because of just, you know, from interactions uh, during school or exposure to shared needles by vaccination uh, that occur a lot uh, in these um, developing countries. So, so that also um, a, a misconception that uh, health advocacy, you know, health advocates and physicians can try to educate the public and the patients so that the Hep B patients are not stigmatized. That's a great point. When I'm so I'm Dr. Nguyen's patient for my chronic Hep B, and when I think back to when I was first diagnosed and I had only just become an RN, I had only just passed the boards like two months before I was diagnosed, and I think back to what little knowledge I had about this at the time. It is very confusing and every person is different. Every person reacts with different feelings and emotions for sure. Um, Dr. Lim, your thoughts? Uh, yes, absolutely. I agree entirely with my colleague, Dr. Nguyen. Uh, just two small additional uh, thoughts on this. The first is that uh, the remain important myths about HPV transmission has been highlighted. Uh, things as simple as uh, sharing utensils, drinking glasses, chopsticks, uh, hugging, kissing. And I repeatedly hear stories of patients who 
have been shunned uh, socially uh, because of these concerns. And that's part of our obligation as clinicians to educate not only our patients, but their family members, their caregivers, and our broader community uh, to really highlight that um, these are not routes of transmission, that it's actually quite difficult to transmit under, except under very specific circumstances. The second thought is that uh, one thing that I've seen in numerous situations uh, in a way that's very emotionally driven um, are relationships, particularly among uh, those who are in a relationship and or our fiance or um, spouses. Uh, and uh, I've had numerous cases where uh, one individual has known hepatitis B, the other does not. Um, they are thinking about getting married and uh, it becomes very emotional because sometimes there hasn't been um, a disclosure of one status and how we can get around that. And I remember sharing with individual that was one of my patients and her fiance, how this is something that we can deal with, we can test and vaccinate, immunize. Uh, and I could just recall the tears flowing down their faces just because they felt that there was a path forward, that this is not a um, by any means a death sentence, that, that there are things that can be done uh, both for the individual with infection as well for the individual who is his or her partner. And I think that's, again, an opportunity for teaching and education and support and really re recognizing what are the unique uh, needs and concerns and anxieties for our patients and make sure we can support that. Definitely. Yeah. And we're really fortunate that we live in an era when we have an effective vaccine. I do think because it's a three series vaccine and the possibility that some people don't complete the series, I just want to emphasize what you both have already said, and that's to get the immunity checked, to do the antibody titers for those family members or friends or partners who maybe were already vaccinated, but just to ensure the immunity status. I do know some patients who have finished their vaccine series and they get diagnosed with chronic hep B and they say, how was this possible? And of course, the presumption is that they were exposed at a very early age in early childhood or as an infant or newborn. But, you know, it's something that everybody, I think, who is potentially at risk of exposure should verify. So the next um, section of our session today is on language barriers. So language barrier is um, uh, specific and is not really dependent on just educational level. Uh, level of education is one thing. Health literacy is another part of it. And they these things are not interchangeable. So regardless of level of education or length of residence in the U.S., language may remain a barrier because you cannot always literally translate word by word and expect the meaning to be the same. And uh, many, some of the more technical words, for example, the language, uh, there may not be an equivalent term in the patient's uh, home language. And I uh, could speak for this um, uh, myself. I am bilingual in English and Vietnamese. I have many Vietnamese patients and I do my best to explain and, and translate um, into Vietnamese uh, what I would like to educate the patients. But a lot of time there are no equivalent words. And sometimes when you try to find quote unquote exact word by word, you know, it would actually sound kind of funny and 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 the meaning actually may be totally off. So I think it's uh, uh, very important to recognize this and use language that is understandable and culturally sensitive to the patients that uh, that we work with. And not all Asian origin languages are supported by, you know, interpretation or translation services too. So that is the other issue. I'm from the Bay Area, so it's uh, more than 30% of the population here are uh, Asian. So it may be easier here uh, to find uh, interpreters uh, for the main uh, groups like um, uh, Vietnamese or Chinese, Mandarin or Cantonese. But um, if I need a, an interpreter uh, for a patient from Laos, for example, uh, it is harder uh, to find sometimes. Uh, but for the more uncommon languages, uh, AT&T operators, uh, we can access, but you know it's not as good as an in-person or video uh, person. But these are um, things that we really need to, to pay attention to. The effects of language barriers is very important. Um, it um, 
you know, the patient may feel that they are not being understood and feel alienated from their healthcare providers. Uh, they may have problems interacting with others or, or is afraid of being misunderstood. And that may eventually lead to a lack of trust, you know, and um, late alienation with the healthcare providers. And that would really impact the care. So what may be some of the solutions? Medical interpreters would be very useful, and as I already alluded to uh, earlier, in-person and video interpreters, uh, that would be easier to understand and there will be more empathy, uh, easier to have more empathy than uh, just by uh, telephone. And the use of family members as interpreters, um, if appropriate, if the family members are truly bilingual, uh, and if it's agreeable to patient. And this can be, you know, uh, something to discuss further with Dr. Lim and uh, Jennifer, because I know some healthcare centers actually discourage the use of family members as in interpreters. Uh, uh, some even say that we should not use that. But um, family members are more likely to come from similar cultural backgrounds and the family member would be there and um, maybe helpful more than someone who um, may be speaking the same language. Uh, for example, Mandarin. Mandarin is spoken by people from mainland China as well as from uh, Chinese immigrants uh, from many other different areas or from other uh, neighbors uh, such as Taiwan or Hong Kong, etc. So someone who speaks the same language is not necessarily have the same uh, exact cultural background too. Uh, so that is something uh, to consider. And educational resources that are culturally appropriate. And I think from my experience, one of the most uh, uh, useful way to overcome some of this is to have bilingual, multilingual healthcare professionals. I go to an outreach clinic in uh, the South Bay of uh, the San Francisco area, where many uh, patients are immigrants from Asia, from uh, Central South America. Uh, and the staff in that clinic, many of them, uh, almost all of them are bilingual. And it's so helpful. The patient just feel comfortable just walking into that clinic and they know they can speak directly to someone uh, there versus in the clinic where the staffs are not bilingual or multilingual that they would have to call in an, inter, uh, 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 an interpreter. And many patients seem to also be hesitating to request interpreter. Uh, some maybe to fear of um, bothering other people or some other kind of fear. Um, because I have had patients that uh, uh, would decline um, in, interpreters, uh, e even when I asked if they would want, and I would could see that the patient may have a little bit of uh, struggles with the language, uh, but people would decline sometimes. So mobile app uh, is very useful. I see some patients use that and they use it with me too um, because they can translate. Many apps will translate or, you know, they are not sure what word, you know, and then they use the app to, to translate it and show me. So we would need to be creative in how we communicate with our patients, uh, but uh, bilingual, multilingual healthcare professionals uh, in the same clinics uh, is something that I would uh, strongly advocate for. And um, I will turn this back uh, to uh, Jennifer to um, help share with us some of the perspectives, you know, from your perspectives, you know, as an ally healthcare professional and um, a patient in this field. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Nguyen. Yeah, you're absolutely right that different regions of the country have, uh, you know, different diaspora communities. And so it may be more or less challenging to find an in-person interpreter at your facility or at your clinic to those learners listening out there to, at your location. I think perhaps when available, some third party uh, language interpreting services that offer a wide menu of languages can be very useful. Um, you know, it, it means that you don't have the interpreter in-house through the organization, but through a third party. But I realize there can be cost with that. Dr. Lim, what has been your experience? I, I understand you practice primarily on the East Coast. What is it like with your community there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so we are fortunate that we have uh, really strong language interpretation service, both live in person, but also through uh, video and uh, as well as audio phone as well. 
And I think it always is a balance. Our institution is one which has a very strong preference for the use of formally trained medical interpreters rather than the use of family members or staff. And I think that uh, Dr. Wen very importantly highlighted uh, that there can be a higher level of trust and comfort level when you use a family member. And I think that uh, it's always a judgment call for us as clinicians is determining what might be appropriate for a given patient. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I have learned that sometimes family members may have uh, specific biases about what his or her family member can handle, particularly when it deals with difficult diagnoses, uh, such as liver cancer due to hepatitis B. And in, I've had cases where, you know, either a medical student or a medical resident or fellow working with me that shares the same language capacity reveals that uh, that what's actually been communicated to the patient by a family member may not always be fully reflective of what we're trying to communicate. And so I think that there is a balance in terms of you know, how that is managed. And I think uh, um, that's something where just having a sense of what's appropriate for individual patients is helpful. Uh, the only other comment I would make is that one thing that I found to be useful uh, because I recognize that after I've tried to communicate and it's translated, uh, sometimes it's hard to get really good feedback as to what the patient understands. And so one thing that I've done on a routine basis is ask the patient to reflect back what is their understanding about what we've discussed regarding our treatment plan or prognosis, et cetera. And uh, that has been really useful for me to just make sure and double check uh, that what we're communicating, what they're hearing and understanding is the same. That's a really good point. In many languages um, that come from the Asian region, there's a word for respectful agreement. Like It's like it it directly translates often to yes, but it's not always actually yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Similarly with no's, you know. Um, and so I agree that's a very good point to bring up. And the family dynamic, again, I think this is a, a perhaps a recurring theme in today's discussion that the family is often a, a large part of, of all of this, not just the guilt, but also the protecting sometimes that the family interpreter wants to provide. Dr. Nguyen, did you have anything else to add? You had peppered in quite a few things that would have applied to the panel discussion throughout the didactic. I just wanted to, to highlight what Dr. Lim uh, mentioned earlier about the use of interpreters, family versus non-family. That's a really important point. And this go back to, again, the cultural belief. Like uh, I have had patients because I am fortunate that I am bilingual, so I can communicate directly with many of my uh, Vietnamese patients. And I've had many family members come up to me and because they know that I can understand Vietnamese and I can speak Vietnamese directly to their families, right? So they would say that, you know, ask me, don't tell the patient that the, the patient has cancer, for example. So then I would have to spend time to try to convince the family, you know, to let me. I said that, no, I cannot tell the patient, the patient have no cancer when the patient does, but I will promise to say it in the best way possible uh, so that um, things can fall in stages and, and give support, you know, to the patient. And also try to convince the family too, you know, that from my experience, you know, patient knows more than you think. And I tell the family, you know, you the patient have cancer, you know, most patients would feel there's something in their body is not right, you know, the patient knows. So because, and many patients told me themselves that, you know, though doctor so and so told me I'm okay, but it's my body. I know, I know that the cancer is progressing, that the doctor was just trying to make me feel better, you know. And fortunately, so far I've been able to convince the family, you know, that the patient knows anyway whether you you think the patient knows or not, and eventually will know. So it's better to let the patient know, but you would say it in the most supportive way and provide support. So I, I want to, to share that because that actually is not uncommon at all. I've had this many, many times in my career. You're absolutely you right. <laughs> I, in the cancer center where I work, I have seen it go both ways, but because happy and liver cancer are often co-occurring conditions. I have often seen family decide, we're only going to tell mom about this one or that one. We'll just say it's just this one. You know, we'll just say it's cancer or we'll just say it's hep B. But I often see them make a choice about which one do we focus on. We don't need to tell mom or tell dad about both. It's really interesting. 
Okay, so I think uh, our next topic is the, uh, that of navigating health insurance. I think we all recognize that to provide uh, quality care, uh, that it's important that there's access both to the diagnostic tests, the tests that help to evaluate and stage one's disease, have access to antiviral therapies if and when um, appropriate, as well as the other tools that are necessary for long-term um, uh, monitoring, such as uh, imaging for liver cancer. And so I think that there are important barriers within this realm. I think that patients without health insurance, it's a little bit more obvious that having the financial resources to cover the costs um, of these um, tests is very, very challenging. Um, and therefore, there's an important opportunity to identify uh, whether patients may be eligible for insurance, what is their immigration or citizenship status in terms of identification, as well as issues related to language and literacy to access those resources to obtain health insurance. For those who already do have health insurance, uh, some of these same barriers apply, including language and literacy in terms of how to not only um, uh, access health insurance, but how to utilize it uh, in the way that's necessary to receive the highest quality care. Uh, and this includes being able to identify a medical provider, uh, particularly those uh, that may have the uh, uh, cultural and language capacity, but also the uh, specific experience in the care of patients with hepatitis B, as well as being able to navigate uh, the very challenging uh, spectrum of tests and providers uh, for the different elements that are required for care and where you receive care, whether it's in-network, out-of-network, these issues can be very challenging for anyone to navigate and to do so in a way that goes beyond uh, the language issues. And finally, in terms of being able to determine and access treatment, uh, I think this is also an um, issue where uh, even with those with health insurance, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or commercial payer, there are substantial differences in terms of prescription drug coverage uh, and out-of-pocket expense, and being able to navigate uh, that particular challenge is, is important. How do we overcome uh, these barriers? So I think first, for those who are not currently insured, uh, I think one of our responsibilities as healthcare providers uh, is to participate in the process of identifying individuals within our own offices uh, and or social workers uh, to help patients get enrolled and see what they may be potentially eligible for within their state. Uh, I think in many states, uh, there are access to health exchanges that are uh, agnostic of a specific citizenship status. And I think that's important to determine uh, what our patients uh, can access uh, because it's going to be very important in the care of any patient to um, have adequate health insurance to cover uh, the costs of the different elements. Second is that when available, uh, make use of health navigators or care navigators. Uh, they can be incredibly uh, valuable partners in partnering with patients uh, and helping to navigate this entire process about to go through the referral process to get uh, specific services, linkage to care providers with experience in the care and treatment of hepatitis B, to access the medications if and when needed for antiviral therapy, as well as social services, particularly for those who have very specific care needs related to hepatitis B and its complications. And then finally, uh, obviously, uh, in addition to trying to access medications for hepatitis B when possible and as appropriate medically uh, to be able to access uh, generic uh, antiviral medications. It is uh, obviously very difficult to be able to account for the very wide spectrum of barriers when it comes to uh, healthcare access, uh, particularly related to health insurance as well as access to medications. However, I think it's, we do want to provide at least a few resources that we have found to be very, very useful and valuable uh, that might be helpful for you and your patients. So first, our patient assistance programs. So, so this is a website from the Hepatitis B Foundation at hepb.org. Uh, that is an incredibly rich resource. It's probably the, the best curated website that I've seen uh, that gives you a lot of detail about very specific programs for patient assistance, copay assistance, uh, online pharmacies, uh, as well as discount cards to access prescription drugs. And so this is, I view, as a go-to site for patients. The second is the Prepare Toolkit. Uh, this is something that can be a very useful uh, document and resource guide that can uh, that has a specific area that's focused on um, insurance uh, access for antiviral treatment. Third is that each uh, state has slightly different policies at the level of either fee-for-service or managed Medicaid, Medicare, and or commercial insurance within each state. And obviously, it's impossible for any clinician to 
just know all those resources and the, all the intricacies. And so one thing that the American Liver Foundation has created is a resource guide that is state-specific, uh, that can be a useful tool uh, so that wherever you are located and wherever you are practicing, that you can access this and potentially you give this to your patient uh, and partner with them to find those resources that are local to you. And then finally, uh, this there's a patient navigation program. There are similar models in multiple states. Uh, this website is one that's specific to New York City region that helps patients to uh, get linked to care uh, for hepatitis B, uh, particularly in, in areas that may have specific uh, cultural or language capacity that meet the needs of your patient. And so at this time, I'll transition back uh, to my colleague for our discussion. Thank you. I think financial toxicity is a major part of the delay in diagnosis. I can think of many patients over the years who I've had who did not know they had Hep B until the day they were also diagnosed with liver cancer. They get both diagnoses at the same time, and it's only because they present from symptoms related to their cancer progression. And so it brings up the question, how does one know if they have Hep B if they aren't insured and they don't perhaps, even if we inform them of the possibility that they may be because of their demographics and their endemic place of birth, you know, do they want to take the potential financial cost of getting an insurance plan to do the testing if they maybe don't have Hep B? And so identifying what the options are for screening and testing in your area, I think is really important for some people. I know that in um, San Francisco, there is a liver task force through our public uh, health department, and they do provide free screening for Hep B and Hep C for anybody, regardless of insurance or housing status. And there are other programs similar to that in many parts of the country, but I'm sure there are areas that are not as well supported. And so definitely having those um, colleagues and navigators and clinical social workers who can help navigate what are the insurance options for this person? How do we get an application in to get coverage for this person? Are really important conversations for, for patients to have even before maybe they reach care for treatment, that is. Dr. Nguyen, what are your thoughts on some of this? It could be because, you know, I'm in a clinic, right? So people who come and see me already have a diagnosis. But as you could see from the data that we study from the um you know, the U.S. Um, uh, data, it covers 198 million U.S. people. So it's almost the entire U.S. people with health insurance, right? And the diagnosis rate is still very low. Now, the test for hepatitis B diagnosis, the hepatitis B surface antigen, is pretty inexpensive. And that should be covered by insurance if patients have any kind of insurance. So I think that for the diagnosis, the problem is only partly financial, but maybe it is more of stigma and other things, lack of knowledge. Maybe patients didn't know that they should be screened. Maybe their doctor didn't think that they should be screened and didn't screen them. So, so I think it's, it's quite complex in regards to HBV screening and diagnosis by itself. But certainly removing the financial barriers is very helpful. And as you and Dr. Uh, Lim already mentioned, you know, many cities, you know, and counties and uh, have some kind of program that hepatitis B uh, testing can be free. In California, recently it was passed that testing for hepatitis B uh, uh, should be covered. What I guess I have seen more and the bigger part is about the drug coverage and the blood mm. test coverage. Yes. Um, so uh, having insurance doesn't mean that everything is paid for. And insurance is so complicated, and I am embarrassed to admit that you know I hardly understand my own insurance coverage because one year I can go get tests and I don't get any bill, and one year I would go get tests and I would get a bill for some copay. So it's very variable um, uh, in terms of the insurance. So the complexity of our insurance systems is a major barrier, even in people who are insured. Because like for me, like you know, sometimes people may be afraid to get it because they may they're not sure how much is covered and uh, how much is not. So I have patients who've told me that to get an ultrasound for liver cancer screening because they have hepatitis B, some patients say they pay nothing, they don't get anything, totally free for them with their insurance. Some patients told me that they are billed for the whole cost of the own the insurance. 
So it could be a variety of things, you know, in some patient, maybe because they have to pay and up to an amount, let's say 3,000, 5,000 before the insurance would kick in. You know, some plan is like that. They have a high deductible or they have a high copay that they would have to pay like, you know, 70% of the cost before insurance uh, would kick in. So insurance is really a, a big barriers, I think, for a lot of the monitoring care as well as medication. Medication for some patients, you know, they, it's like they don't pay anything at all. And for some patients, despite insurance, they have a big copay. And one interesting thing is that we may think that having a generic drug is good. Not necessarily, because recently I've had patients who want to be on a brand medication because that brand medication have a coupon. You know, even though it's high girl, but but whatever their part is, they can get a coupon or patient assistance program from the maker of the medication, whereas the generic, uh, the market price may be 20% less than the brand medication, but the patient doesn't get any assistance for their copay, so they would end up paying a lot more for the generic. So it's really complex, and, and I, it really requires a care provider to really be aware of all of these things. I think that uninsured and underinsured are two very different, but perhaps equally as impactful kinds of financial toxicity. And all of these things speak to a, a larger systemic issue that the three of us and this didactic are not able to solve. But I think having the conversations are go back to part of the didactic that Dr. Lim talked about, which is about promoting policies and changes in the healthcare system to improve the care that our patients ultimately get and the rights that they have under the law. Dr. Lim, what has been your experience with financial toxicity in your patient population? Uh, there's a lot that we can talk about, but very briefly, I think that uh, there are many examples where uh, even insured patients have significant barriers to access. I've had patients where the insurer uh, approved uh, a prescription of a given antiviral, but with 100% copay, which basically is meaningless because that means that yeah. uh, the patient still has to pay for the whole cost of it, right? It's very meaningless. Uh, and I think that that's uh, my two words of advice, I think, is number one, uh, working with specialty pharmacies when possible, where they can really investigate as thoroughly as possible what are the options available for branded or generic medications, what is going to uh, be the best possible outcome for the patient, and limit out-of-pocket expenses. The second is that when we're available, 340B programs uh, sometimes can be a real partner and friend uh, for patients um, and sometimes may be able to provide a free or very low cost uh, antivirals for hepatitis B. And of course, that is uh, really dependent on geography. But I think the other factor, which I think is beyond the scope of today's discussion, is covering all the other costs related to hepatitis B therapy, particularly when it comes to high cost procedures uh, such as CT scans or MRIs for hepatitis B related liver cancer. And that's a whole different ball of wax. Uh, but I think that the principle for us is that you know we really want to be really strong advocates and be able to negotiate with payers to ensure that the best possible care is provided. Absolutely. And it's not that we as advocates or as providers can solve all these problems, but ideally we have teams and resources that we can reach to. And so I hope that this didactic is one of those resources. I hope that people also reach out to their Colleagues like licensed clinical social workers, specialty pharmacy, as you mentioned, Dr. Lim, can be an excellent resource. And of course, patient navigators too. For the sake of time, I, I feel we have to wrap up. I feel there's so much more we could talk about. There's so many more patient experiences that I would love to share, but perhaps that will be for another, another session some other time. I want to thank everybody here and I'll hand it over for the wrap up. Okay, so I think that uh, we had a wonderful discussion about some of the more common barriers to care of patient hepatitis B. There are obviously many other barriers, and so we highlight just a few. First are spiritual or religious beliefs. I think that there's an understanding that uh, how one views their own health and wellness, well-being, uh, and how they interact with disease and illness varies dramatically uh, based on cultural context as well as uh, religious beliefs as well, and trying to identify that and trying to work in context uh, of an understanding of where a patient is coming from, I think is part of our obligation as clinicians so we can provide the most uh, sensitive care that we can. Second is mistrust of the healthcare system. This is increasingly prevalent, uh, uh, particularly in the context of the pandemic, 
And I think that's part of our role is to continue doing our part to be um, good educators, uh, but also to be uh, sensitive to the fact that there is a reason why there's a mistrust of uh, healthcare providers and education. Uh, there's a long history behind this. And I think that we can do a long, uh, play a large role um, in trying to dispel some of these concerns and uh, hopefully uh, be able to build that trust with patients, at least on a case-by-case basis. And then number three, I think one of the more common issues that we face is that um, many of our patients, particularly those who are Asian-American background, uh, take over-the-counter medication supplements, herbal remedies, and and taking a medication history, unless you specifically ask about it, uh, they often will not volunteer the information. Do you take any medications? No. Do you take any herbal remedies? Yes, right? It's, it's something that we have to specifically query. And we recognize that some of these uh, may either have potential for hepatotoxicity and others may have potential for drug-drug interaction with antivirals or other prescribed medications. And so it's something that is part of good clinical practice is for us to uh, specifically ask, identify, educate, and when necessary to make changes uh, so that it uh, doesn't impact their liver care. So in conclusion, I do want to just highlight a few what we view as take-home points first. Asian Americans are disproportionately affected by hepatitis B with significant disparity in not only the prevalence of chronic hepatitis B, but hepatitis-related complications such as liver cancer. There are many barriers to hepatitis B care. Uh, we highlight just a few, including stigma, language and health literacy, and insurance. We identified several of the solutions that can begin to overcome these barriers, including increased awareness, education of patients and providers, and the use of culturally linguistically appropriate educational materials, very important. And finally, uh, trying to navigate uh, the health insurance system uh, using uh, the resources that are available. I'd like to thank Dr. Lim, Dr. Nguyen, and Jennifer Wild for that excellent discussion, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the slide set for this podcast and the full program on HBV care in key communities, minimizing barriers and optimizing care, on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. Other key communities addressed in this program include African immigrant communities, people of childbearing potential and their infants, and older adults. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.